0: Welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Ros Taylor. In the past 18 months, confronted by Covid, Britain has turned inwards. We barely travel abroad anymore. When we talk about China, we think about Wuhan. When we think about Australasia, we debate whether zero Covid is a viable strategy. And when we think about India, many of us blame Boris Johnson for not imposing stricter border controls with the country earlier, allegedly because he wanted to do a trade deal with Narendra Modi. Covid has killed millions of people and made life worse for billions more. But in some countries, things were going wrong long before Covid. One of them is India, and with me to talk about it are Debasis Roy Chowdhury, a journalist specialising in Indian politics, and John Keane, a professor of politics at the Wissenschaftszentrum Berlin and University of Sydney. They're authors of the new book, To Kill a Democracy, India's Passage to Despotism. Debasis and John, welcome to The Bunker.
1: Hi, Ross, thank you. Thank you very
2: much for having us, Roz.
0: John, if you go to Wikipedia, it will tell you that India is the world's most populous democracy. But is India a democracy? After the British left, there was quite a sophisticated political and parliamentary system in place, although not much education at all. There was a lot of optimism that India could become a model democracy, and you call this in your book the India story. How does that founding myth, if you like, cloud up? thinking about India?
2: Well, you've summarized it very well, Roz. There is this uh, story. uh, You can find it in Wikipedia. You can find it in the speeches of Western politicians and diplomats and others that goes like this. India is the world's largest democracy. What we say in our book is that there are grains of truth in this story. After all, India survived the bloodshed, and great violence of partition. It managed a free and fair election in 1951 and 1952, where more than 176 million people, men and women, voted. It avoided dictatorship of the kind that settled on post-colonial African states. This India story is reinforced by the fact that there was never period of dictatorship upon independence. India came close to it with the so-called emergency rule period under Mrs. Gandhi, but she was defeated in the 1977 elections. This story we point out of India as the world's largest democracy has been reinforced in a curious kind of upside down orientalist way by Western politicians, and particularly after the collapse of the Soviet Union, American presidents and uh, diplomats. There is substance to this India story, and it's reinforced by the outside views that India is the world's largest uh, democracy. What we say in this book, however, is that realities are um, corroding that image, and actually India is the world's largest failing democracy.
0: So there's an element of wishful thinking in this India story.
2: Yes, and what we do in To Kill a Democracy is reflect upon, introduce readers to the general problem of how democracies die. The big idea that runs through the book is that democracies, yes, can be killed by military coup d'etats. They they can be killed off suddenly. That happened in Bolivia Quite recently, it happened in Thailand with the ousting of uh, Yingluck Shinawat. It's what Morsi did in Egypt. Democracies, we say, can also suffer a kind of slow motion death at the governmental legal level. That was, you know, the great fear of what Trump was doing to the United States. But what we say in the book is that there is another way that democracies die, and that is when, as has happened in India from the beginning, when they neglect their social foundations, when famine is allowed to flourish, so to say, when women don't feel safe because of male violence. I mean, when there is a disintegration of everyday uh, social foundations of democracy, then, of course, the whole ideal of democracy as self-government of people Uh, who treat each other as equals becomes a farce. It becomes a tragedy. And uh, that's the big idea that runs through this book, that India has a lesson for every other so-named democracy. Neglect the social foundations of your democracy, allow, for example, the gap between rich and poor to grow, then it will damage the whole spirit and substance of that democracy.
0: Your book is partly about the corruption of elections in India and how the media fails to hold politicians to account. But it's also, as you've said, about the lives of poorer and especially rural Indians and their powerlessness in the system. You write about a girls' school in Haryana, which has 850 pupils in four classrooms. Debasish, can you tell me a bit more about the situation that school is in? Hello, Hello. Hello.
1: Thanks for having us on this show and taking an interest in our book. The book, as John mentioned, uh, not just looks at degradation of governing and oversight institutions. uh, It also examines what we call the social foundations of democracy and how its various components like uh, health, education, mobility, nutrition, etc. intersect with democracy. So as part of the fieldwork on the topic of education, I visited this school in the northern state of Haryana it's a village called Pinang and it's just two hours' drive from central Delhi. Well, this school epitomizes the general neglect of government-run schools in India. In India, well, the state has progressively retreated from the responsibility of providing universal elementary education. This has led to underspending in uh, most government schools, resulting in understaffing and poor school infrastructure. And this Pinangawan Government Girls Senior Secondary School is a perfect example. It has uh, just four full-time teachers, when it should be 24. All of them are naturally overworked, or they take extra classes and teach subjects that they do not know about. There are no specialist teachers for English, Physics, Chemistry, and Biology. And the girls complain that this is because the government has decided that because it's a girls' school, they should all just study arts. And they deeply resent this. There is no science laboratory. There are no computers, or rather no working computers, I should say. All the 850 students are crammed in four classrooms. Only one of these rooms has a few desks. In the rest, the girls just sit on the floor. Classes are uh, also held in the corridors. During monsoons and peak summer, uh, when it is impossible to hold classes outdoors, many classes are just cancelled. Or the school has also no teaching staff, which means the girls mind the gates and sweep the floors as well. But they draw the line at the toilets, which have uh, become much too ugly for them to clean. So overall, a pretty dismal picture of state-run elementary school education.
0: And I imagine at the moment, these are the kind of schools that have closed as well during COVID. So they're not even open at all. Yeah.
1: I mean, this is a school
0: in name only. And yet India has some of the best scientific universities in the world. We know that because some of their graduates end up in Silicon Valley. How is the country able to compete at that level when it has such inadequate schools?
1: I think we need to distinguish here between elementary education and higher education. From the early days of independence, uh, higher education was given a far greater priority than creating a level playing field by spreading elementary education, which is what uh, all other major economies in Asia have done. The idea in India was to indigenize uh, high technology in support of the state-led heavy industrialization program to build capital and break out of poverty. Now, this led to the creation of centres of excellence, such as the famed Indian Institutes of Technology, as you know the famous IITs. Many of whose alumni now run global tech majors today, including Google. Or like similarly, uh, Indian medical colleges have, over the decades, supplied a steady flow of doctors to the UK's National Health Service, and faculties of other disciplines in colleges and universities across the a whole world now drawn talented products of the Indian education system. But the growth of primary education has been severely constrained. Or well, the bottom line is that the Indian state has consistently underinvested in elementary education. Now bear in mind that the responsibility for education is jointly shared by the federal and and provincial governments. And a handful of provinces such as Kerala and Himachal Pradesh have actually done very well. But the overall picture in India that emerges is one of neglect. This has led, of course, to wide disparity in access to education. And education now squarely belongs to those who can pay for it. But what this does is an education system mediated by the market in an unequal society only, you know, ends up entrenching inequality. So in the absence of state-driven equalizing opportunities, merit is mostly correlated with the social class of students. Uh, uh, this is a phenomenon that the Economist magazine calls uh, hereditary meritocracy. India is a very good example of this. And uh, it's fairly safe to assume that, uh, you know, um, that no one from this Pinanga one girls' school is uh, ever going to run a tech conglomerate in Silicon Valley. And and the result of all this is low social mobility, which is a sign of democracy failure. Indians, for example, I will just cite a small figure. Indians are the least likely among peer countries uh, to break out of education and income brackets into which they're born. For example, it takes uh, seven generations for a member of a poor Indian family to reach the average income level. If you compare it with Denmark, it takes only just one one generation there. So this is deeply anti-democratic and and this is a democracy failure.
0: Curiously, I was talking to a British journalist Adrian Wooldridge about uh, hereditary privilege and the failure of meritocracy just a couple of weeks ago on the bunker and in the context of Britain, although of course the problem is far less acute here, but nonetheless it it comes up more and more in in recent, last year or so. Right. Tell us about one of the most shocking accounts in your book, and there are a lot of them. This is a very, very shocking book of a place called Singrauli in India, and what's what's happening there?
1: Our section on social foundations highlights inequality of access to the components of a dignified social life, as John Explain, such as decent work, food, uh, health, education, mobility, etc. But we also wanted to highlight the inequality of access to the most elementary needs of life, namely land, air, and water. Now, we picked the industrial hub of Singrauli in the north uh, and is considered the country's energy capital. It supplies about 15% of India's coal based electricity. The region has several coal mines that together produce about uh, 100 million tons of coal a year and feed the power stations, which in turn feed a host of other factories from aluminum to chemicals. Now, the result of all this uh, industrial activity is that the area is marked by government officials as critically polluted. Now, what does that pollution look like? I'll tell you, on a regular uh, summer day, Singroli looks like a town caught in a dust storm. The air is thick with black dust. Visibility, even in the middle of a perfectly sunny day, can be low. If it is not coal dust, it's fly ash from the burnt coal of power plants. Or it's a loose dust that flies off the mountains of dug up mine topsoil. You know, Singroli is nestled among hills. And I was surprised when I discovered how many of these hills are actually man-made. These are just sitting there with regular hills. You can see them all over the place. They're just oversized mounds of topsoil that got dug out in the process of mining. And every time you have a strong wind, loose dust flies off these man-made hills. This soil and coal dust and fly ash layer Singarali's crops and water bodies and is breathed in by local residents or the chemicals in the toxic industrial uh, effluent of various kinds seep deep into the soil and water bodies. as, And this means that diseases and deformities are rampant. But you might think that Singrali is an extreme example because it's an industrial hub. It's not. It is really a microcosm of the unchecked environmental abuse in India. I will give you some figures here. 2.3 2.3 million people die every year in India because of air pollution, including one newborn every five minutes. India also has 14 of the 20 most polluted cities in the world by PM 2.5 levels. In Delhi, you can inhale the equivalent of a half a pack of cigarettes on an ordinary day and two packs on a particularly bad air day just by breathing. Similarly, in water... 80% of India's surface water is polluted. Rampant dumping of untreated sewage along with industrial waste has made major rivers unusable and uh, estimated 60% of groundwater reserves are polluted. So this, of course, means that only a small portion of the population with means can access water in general and clean water in particular, that takes us back to the problem of inequality. So Singroli is where you also find not just extreme air and water pollution, where you also find large-scale disposition of land with big corporations appropriating the natural habitat of people in resource-rich areas in the name of development. So in this, Singroli offers a snapshot of a wider problem of land injustice in a country where like 10% of the population controls over 55% of the land, and while 60% of the population has rights over only 5% of the land, and there are then millions of others who are just landless. So in all, Singrali is an example of the extreme land, water, and air injustice that afflicts the whole of India.
0: John, tell us about the Prime Minister, Narendra Modi. He came to power in 2014 on a wave of hope, at least in the West, perhaps, that he'd reform India. What has he done since taking over?
2: Well, I think Deb um, should have a go at that first, and then I would like to say something um, more generally about uh, how to make sense of Narendra Modi.
1: Narendra Modi came in with some very promising social projects. So one of, one of these was building toilets all over the country to end open defecation. Of course, you know, he's not the first one to try this. This has been tried before and it hasn't worked because the problem in India, the problem of open defecation is rooted in the problem of lack of sewage systems in the countryside, lack of water. But he did make it a big issue and he raised awareness of it. And so it has achieved some measure of success, I would say. In the last election, in which he uh, was re-elected with a thumping majority, one big factor for that is known as the last mile delivery of social transfers. So some of these, like connecting homes with electricity and cooking gases, because there has been pressure from the Modi government to perform better. There have been more connections, more homes lit up by electricity. There have been some uh, or some progress in the infrastructure building, road building. So these are the things, some of these things which um, have happened. But then many of these projects have been handicapped by the limited resources, budget allocation, Put into them a couple of other things that I I should mention here. I think I forgot. One is a new project to build homes for the poor, that has seen some or some measure of success, and also a drive to bring girl child to the school. That that has also raised awareness and it has also been somewhat successful. John, would you like to take over?
2: Yes, I, I would add that it's important for listeners to understand the role that Narendra Modi plays as the redeemer of India. It's one of his trademark qualities that he is uh, a strong guide for a, an otherwise rudderless India. And if you look at his performance style, you see that you know, he's got this capacity as redeemer, a demagogue, who wears a coat of many colours. He's the humble Chaiwala. He's the servant of the people. He meditates in, in in holy caves. He's of course an ex-preacher of the organization called the RSS. He's grown a long beard. He looks like a Hindu ascetic king. He's a nation builder. He appears during Diwali dressed in battle gear with soldiers. Uh, Of course, he came to Delhi with the reputation of being an outsider. He was, uh, for a time, actually banned from entering the United States because he'd been chief minister of Gujarat, uh, where he presided over the 2002 pogroms, when hundreds of Muslims lost their lives. He's the tweeter-in-chief, more than 67 million uh, followers. And of course, he's the champion of a kind of take-no-prisoners Hindutva, you know, a Hindu nationalism, and has uh, put enormous pressure on the 200 million Muslims who live in India, who are suffering from a kind of invisibilization, verbal insults, police inaction, and uh, various forms of propaganda. So Modi is a demagogue not the only one. There are, the book describes um, a number of other cases of, of demagogues who are operating inside the Indian polity today. But he's, of course, the strongman, the redeemer, who we argue is having damaging effects on power-sharing constitutional democracy in India.
0: That's extraordinary shape-shifting. So people see in him often what they want to see, and he supplies that. Is that secret in his
2: Yes, yes, it does. He's got a rainbow quality uh, to him. And um, one of the points that uh, our book develops is that actually all despots, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Erdogan in, in Turkey, even the dictator Viktor Orban in Hungary, I mean, one of the One of the features that they have in common, the content is different, is the way that they have this kind of uh, chameleonic quality. You know, they come dressed in a coat of many colors, and this has functional advantages. It allows them to be different leaders to different uh, groups of people. It gives them a certain capacity to sail with the political winds. They are not, strictly speaking, I think Modi, strictly speaking, is not an ideologue. He has many faces.
0: What's the experience of voting in an Indian election like?
1: It uh, varies. It can be sort of like a festival. A lot of people gather at the booths, they queue up for a long time, patiently waiting for their turn, the rich and the poor turn off for elections equally. So so there is a sense of empowerment. Also, voters feel like kings. It's their day as they get to create the rulers But uh, sometimes it can be fraught. Uh, This happens in elections marked by political violence in particular. There is less gaiety and more tension at the booths in such cases. And rather than kings, voters can feel more like subjects as they're compelled to vote for one party or another because they're caught up in a dynamics that uh, we call elective despotism, in which uh, dark money and violence tilt elections, in fact, rule elections. So it's a mixed bag, you could say, Roz.
2: One of the big ideas that um, we try to develop in in this book, uh, Roz, is that the BJP government is the prime example of a tendency towards the concentration of power at the centre the use of a very sophisticated media strategy that has the effect of trying to gaslight millions of Indian citizens, a politics that has neutered the central parliament, that has tamed the judiciary, that is cultivating... Polygarchy, we call it, you know, close relations between government officials and big business, um, people like Mukesh Ambani. One picture that we develop is this role that Modi is playing to break down step by step in the name of democracy, in the name of the people, power sharing, rule of law, democracy. That is a very strong trend. And we Uh, say in the book that India in this respect is a warning to the rest of the democratic world that it is possible that India will go down the same pathway as Turkey, as Russia, as Hungary, and growing numbers of polities, including throughout the Central Asian republics. That is a real possibility. The question towards the end of our book that we raise is, are there barriers? What could actually uh, humble, bring back to earth Modi and the BJP government? And we say that um, there are trends. that, for example, he was elected in 2019 with only 37% of the vote. There can be voter resistance. It should not be ruled out. There are regional parties and tensions with the states. We think his whole vision of um, a united India, you know, one India, uh, Hindi, Hindu, Hindustan is up against the reality that India is a plurality of, of languages and ethnicities and class divisions and so on. There are signs of resistance from women that we document in our book. The spirit of Satyagraha, you know, non-violent resistance, is evident among students and, and farmers. And there was tremendous resistance to the new uh, citizenship laws. There are signs of the use, perhaps growing use, of right to information laws. Uh, You know, annually between four and six million requests for freedom of information are filed. There is a growing sense in certain quarters that the constitution itself is endangered. It was a very fine constitution. So putting those trends together, the picture that we present towards the end of the book is that there are kind of parallel processes in which India is on the pathway to uh, a new kind of despotism that the world should fear, but there is also uh, resistance.
0: That's a slightly more optimistic note on which to end on. Debasis and John, thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you
1: very much, Ross.
0: Thank you.
2: Our pleasure, Ross.
0: To Kill a Democracy is out now, published by Oxford University Press. I'm Ross Taylor, and thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can support the show on Patreon too. We'd love it if you did. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. Join us next time for another Bunker Daily.
2: The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The producer
0: was Andrew Harrison.
2: The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Jelna Sofrenievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker is a podmaster's production.